0: Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, The Mining Podcast. And today's guest is Scott Williamson, who's the Managing Director of Blackstone Minerals, uh, who are an Australian-based minerals exploration company, uh, moving ahead with their flagship Co, Nickel Copper Platinum Group Element Project in Vietnam. Um, Scott is a mine engineer by background, uh, working in both operations and corporate roles during his career and took up the managing director's role six years ago. Um, he's going to take us through his journey um, and what Blackstone Minerals wants to achieve. So that's welcome, Scott, Scott to the podcast. How are you doing, Scott?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks, Rob. Thanks
0: for having me. No, I appreciate your time as well. So as we always start these uh, podcasts off, I just want to give us a... Um, um, a background about yourself tell, tell the audience a little bit about your career what you've done in your career um until uh up until sort of present day yeah no worries thanks
1: rob yeah um so yeah i actually grew up in geraldton which is uh four hours north of perth in western australia and um my background or my my sort of family history is actually more in agriculture um, but there was uh, two generations ago my great-grandfather was actually a mining engineer, and I only found this out probably um, halfway through my degree. So it's, um, yeah, so we've got a, a bit of a family history in agriculture, but also in mining. And um, and so I, I ended up at the West Australian School of Mines in Kalgoorlie. Um, it took me a little while to get there. So there's you can actually start your degree in, in Perth. And, and so I, I started in Perth. And it took me a while to move out to Kalgoorlie. But once I got there, it was probably some of the best times I've had um, out there in Kalgoorlie. And and so, yes, yeah, studied mining engineering. But also, I did a double degree with commerce, so uh, majoring in management as well. So, I've got the double degree with commerce, which has come in um, handy in, in my current role. So, I started mining engineering uh, with Rio Tinto as a graduate mining engineer at the Argyle Diamond Mine, uh, which was a great platform to to learn uh, the engineering field and I learned a lot about underground mining but also large-scale underground mining so Argyle Diamond's actually a a block cave so I was up there setting up the block cave so that, that was a really great experience and then then I decided to move over to the east coast of Australia using my degree as a sort of a platform to to sort of explore the east coast and landed in Ballarat and worked at the Ballarat gold mine and then went back to Rio Tinto and worked for the North Parks Copper Mine, which is a, another large-scale um, block cave. So I did a, yeah, a second stint in block cave mining. Then I went up to Krakow, which is a little gold mine up in Queensland. And then eventually um, ended up back in Western Australia, um, working for Perseus in uh, West Africa, in Ghana. And that was a great experience as well. So I got exposure to international mining and, and mining in uh, emerging markets um, with with uh, Perseus. And then I made the jump into the corporate world with um, a company called Hartleys, which is a, a small stockbroking firm in uh, Western Australia, in Perth. And, and that gave me exposure to... The financial side of mining, um, as a mining analyst, so so I learned how to sell mining stocks and um, understand and analyse mining companies and and mining projects. So that gave me a great understanding of the financial side of mining, and that was uh, and then uh, my final role before this role was uh, investor relations uh, with Resolute. So back in West African Gold, um, with Resolute um, as the investor relations manager, which was also another good sort of um, stepping stone into this role, which is really, it's all about investor relations. My role is 80, 90% of my role is is looking after my shareholders and um, and that's having that technical background helps, but um, yeah, really it's a, it's a corporate role that is all about um, creating shareholder wealth.
0: Yeah, um, obviously you're the managing director and as I mentioned in the introduction, you've been there six years. So I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the company and also your journey during those 6 years as the managing director
1: yeah it's um it's amazing that it's been that long it's been a real roller coaster ride so when we when i first started um we just acquired a an exploration asset in british columbia canada, canada and it was a focus on cobalt and so the idea was um in the early days that cobalt was the critical metal for the lithium ion battery and so we, we started exploring for cobalt and um, we were, we were f- limited. We had limited success, unfortunately, with the, the scale of the opportunity that we found. And, and, but at the same time, we started going into South Korea and, and talking to the battery manufacturers about the, the chemistry mix in the battery. And so a lot of people don't realise that the lithium-ion battery is actually full of nickel, cobalt and manganese. And we thought cobalt was the, the, the metal of, of uh, most focus. But what we realised very quickly is that they were starting to remove the cobalt from the chemistry mix and they were increasing the nickel content. And so with these relationships we'd built in South Korea, we, we started to understand that, okay, we need to start looking for nickel. So they, they effectively said to us, go and find nickel. Um, particularly, we want nickel sulphide and we want large-scale nickel sulphide. And it was actually the Koreans that said said to us, yeah, go and find some nickel. And so we landed in Vietnam and we looked all around the world for nickel opportunities and particularly nickel sulfide. And unfortunately, there's not many nickel sulfide opportunities in the world. So the, you've got Australia, Canada, uh, China, Russia, and there's a few scattered around Africa and South America. But what we saw is that the Australian assets that were available were too small. They didn't have the scale that we we're after. Um, the Canadian assets had scale, but they didn't have the grade. And so we we landed in Vietnam because we had scale and we also had some, some good grade as well. So we've got a, a combination of some large-scale open opportunities, particularly in open pit mining, and 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 reasonable grade as well. So compared to um, some of the Canadian um, nickel sulfides. So yeah, it was really a strategy that was built on a customer-led um, uh, focus, really. So we went to the customer. The customer said, um, "No longer requiring cobalt, can you go and look for nickel?" And and then we landed in uh, Vietnam four years ago, and we haven't looked back. So the the at the stage that we acquired the the nickel mine in Vietnam, the company was basically at shell value, I think around five million dollars. So. So it was a it was a bit of a pivot, and but it was driven by this this strategy from our customers. and um and that's really sort of um, allowed the the company to grow in a different direction and and has really um, put us on a really strong um, trajectory. and um it's ah uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a wild ride. and we're very lucky to have some very supportive shareholders now and and um, yeah, we're we're at the final stages of the study work to to build a mine and a refinery in Vietnam. So it's, um, yeah, it's been a a big four years since we acquired the mine in Vietnam.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you said that it's customer led um, because obviously in business, you, you start a business because your customers want something and you're able to produce whether it's a product or service for your customers. But I guess a lot of mining companies, don't take that approach they yeah. go out and find a commodity or mineral and think they can just mine it and then 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 go and find the customer but you've done it the reverse is that, yeah. tends to what, is that tends to what happens
1: yeah you're right and and particularly exploration companies they'll 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 just explore for for metal or of any different commodity whatever's hot at the time and and i think it's probably from my commercial background in mining analy- analysis, and and my understanding of of the economics, and and the fact that I'm a mining engineer is, is probably driving that sort of focus on okay, well let's not just go and explore for something that nobody wants. Let's let's really go and explore for something that we know is going to be in demand not today, but in maybe in three to five years time. You've got to be ahead of the cycle. So. It, it's no no good going to try and look for lithium right now because everyone wants lithium. So you want to be looking for nickel five years four or five years ago when we were and um, and yeah. So and at the same time that people um, that were starting to get into lithium as well um, four or five years ago. So you really want to be countercyclical. You want to be ahead of the cycle, but you you want to be talking to the customers because they gave us that guidance well before any investor was aware. So we were, we were lucky that those customers were, were talking to us. And, and if it wasn't for that, that sort of communication that we had with the customers, then we, we probably would have gone chasing something else. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's important. Uh, and I think it is something that is forgotten a little bit in the exploration space. It, it, it's more about, unfortunately, it's about where, where do you find your, your next capital raising? And, um and unfortunately, that that generally is going to go. You're, you're starting to look for whatever's hot at the time, but really, it's it is very inefficient because you you have to be counter-cyclical to be able to pick up assets cheaply and then add value and then um and then sort of ride the the change in the
0: cycle. Yeah, how many people actually think like what you've just explained?
1: Oh, uh, I think the the biggest problem is. That, um the market is so small for the amount of money that's available for exploration, so you you do have to just sort of move to where the, the money's flowing, and and a lot of people aren't thinking longer term because they're they're just thinking where's my next capital raising, where's my next um, lick of cash to keep the keep the thing alive. Whereas because we went to Korea, we got we got an understanding of the long term. Um, I suppose, cycle of, of battery metals, we got an understanding that these things will be funded by large South Korean, Japanese or Chinese or, or large corporations will fund these projects. So so we had that confidence to to think a longer term than a lot of our peers that are just, unfortunately, they have to go to, the ASX platform to raise their capital. Um, so we're, we're, we're very lucky that we've got this opportunity to raise capital that's it's a lot longer term vision. Uh, and these guys are looking 10, 20, 30 years out and they're, they're throwing billions of dollars around. So, so for example, groups like LG, um, the major um, battery manufacturer out of South Korea, they're, they're investing $10 billion into the, um, the Indonesian nickel um, to source and secure their nickel supply. So these are, are numbers that only um, the juniors on, on the ASX can only dream of, but we, we've got access to them because we, we've been working in down this sort of strategic path for, for about four years now. So yeah, we've we've gained that confidence by uh, continuously engaging with those customers and understanding where they're heading. And understanding exactly what they require, and uh, and whereas your your average junior is just drilling and hoping they'll hit something, and 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 hopefully it's something that people will be able to raise raise money f- for you and that sort of thing. So it's it is a completely different strategy, and um, and I don't think there's a, there's a few of us that are in these critical minerals that that are are reaching out to strategics, but it is a hard Hard, it, it's probably harder to go down this path because you can spend three or four years and not see any money. Um, whereas down the conventional path, you just ring up the local stockbroker, all right, let's raise some money. So it's a, it is actually a lot easier down, to go the conventional route.
0: Yeah. So I just wonder if you can just give us an introduction to your uh, flagship nickel project in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, so, so it was a previously operating nickel mine and you can see behind me that it's a a small nickel concentrator that operated between 2013 and 2016 and operated in a difficult nickel price environment. And when the nickel price uh, was about $8,000 per tonne back in 2016, it went into care and maintenance. And the previous owners, they didn't explore the full potential of the district they depleted the first ore body and then they left behind 25 targets. So we've, we've systematically tested a lot of those targets and, and we've drilled 100,000 meters of diamond drilling and we've discovered a 10 year mine life. And it will we'll produce around 18 to 20,000 tons per annum of nickel which is a fairly large scale nickel mine. And so we're in the final stages of the study for the mine but we're also looking to build a refinery so we're going to take the nickel concentrate from the mine and convert it into the first stage of lithium ion battery which is a chemical product which has nickel cobalt and manganese in the ratio of, of approximately 811 and so that's the first part of the cathode and then to produce cathode you then combine that with lithium so you combine your ncm811 with lithium and then you have a cathode which is the key part of the of the lithium-ion battery, so we're we're effectively um, producing all of the other parts of the cathode except the lithium, and that's the NCM eight one one. So that that and that strategy is all built on customer interaction, customer-led um, communication, and and so it it was that that early move into South Korea that that very quickly we realised okay. The battery industry can't deal with a nickel concentrate. So they, these guys, the conventional miner will produce nickel concentrate and they'll sell it to a smelter. The battery industry has no way of dealing with nickel concentrate. So, that, so very quickly we realize, okay, we need to go downstream, we need to build a, a refinery that produces chemical products that then can be fed into this lithium-ion supply chain, the lithium-ion battery supply chain. So yeah it was really that that sort of focus on the the partners and the customers that really pushed us into the downstream strategy and and we were very early on the downstream strategy 4 years ago we talked about downstream nickel and now it's it's becoming the normal for the industry is is everyone wants to push downstream but back when we started pushing downstream it was it was still a, a fairly a new um, strategy for the mining industry. There was, was a real lack of um, of willing. Very much the flavor of the month, and everyone wants to go downstream. But we've got four four years of understanding of the downstream, and and um, through those relationships with with South Korea, we're we're well ahead of a lot of our peers with our understanding of the downstream processing of nickel products. So. And, and Vietnam's a, a great location to be doing it so we've got abundant renewable power which is driving a, a, a green product so a low co2 footprint um, uh, nickel green nickel chemical product for the lithium-ion battery it's um it's definitely in high demand and and uh, yeah we're, we're sitting in a really strong position now at the final stages of our study where we're looking to lock in our partners to to go into the build phase
0: um you obviously given given, and we we speak about obviously the the partnerships. Um, your obviously as a uh com- your company's plan is to be sort of net zero, uh, a net zero producer of copper concentrate for EV batteries. Just wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about how you're going to do that.
1: Yeah, so we're very lucky that the sulfide nickel is the 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 better nickel type. So there's two types: nickel sulfide and nickel laterite. Sulfide nickel is the um, the type that is more easily uh, consumed into the chemicals and and has the the benefit of so the sulfur creates its own energy, it creates its own acid, and so you don't need to throw as much energy and acid at at the, the product, and so it it gives you that benefit of a low CO two footprint from 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 day one. But just because we've got sulfide and sulfur in in the product. The other thing that we're looking at is is because we've got the renewable power, we're looking at a full electric mining fleet and we've integrated that into our pre-feasibility study work. So uh, one of the, the first companies to really do that and integrate that into the study work. So we've got a full electric mining fleet. But also we're looking at a downstream process um, which goes directly into a hydrometallurgy um, process. So conventional nickel sulphide, Goes down a smelting route, which is a pyrometallurgy technology, which is which has a higher CO two footprint. We're looking at a at a hydromet process, which is better suited to the chemical products for lithium ion batteries. So we're doing it slightly different to your conventional route, which is smelting, which is a a um, a process that's been set up for the stainless steel industry. We think the the better way to do it is is a hydromet, which is much more um, efficient for a chemical product, but also allows you to drop that CO2 footprint. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a real pathway here to net zero for us. And we, we think we can potentially do that from day one. And and that that would be a great outcome for our customers. And And what we're seeing is that the customers will probably pay a premium for that ability to be um, net zero or, or at least a green nickel product compared to a lot of our competitors in, say, Indonesia, where they have a nickel laterite, which we... We believe we just won't be able to get the CO2 as low as we can. And uh, and definitely we don't think they'll be able to get anywhere near net zero. And we think we can do that. And that, that'll be
0: a great result uh, when we achieve it. Um, can you explain the the company's multi-product strategy? Um, and obviously the premiums, as you just mentioned, that you'd be able to yeah. get for the products you produce. Yeah, so the, the
1: process... To convert nickel concentrate into these downstream products we go through a few steps and they're sort of it's very modular as well so the first step is to take the concentrate and convert it into what they call an, a mixed hydroxide precipitate or an MHP and that would would go through a further um, leaching process and solvent extraction to produce nickel sulfate and cobalt sulfate and so those two products we can um, convert them into crystal and sell them as as products which trade at a premium to the underlying metal prices. or we can keep them in the sulfate in solution and then combine them into the NCM811. So N- NCM811 trades at a premium to the sulfate premium. so it's a premium on a premium. So the NCM811 can trade as high as 20 to 40 percent premium depending on on the different um, supply demand dynamics. The other products that we we will produce is copper cathode. So, we'll, so one of the steps is to um, uh, remove uh, through solvent extraction the copper uh, sulfate, and then use electrowinning to produce copper cathode. So, yeah, so it's a multi-product strategy means we can sell nickel sulfate, we can sell cobalt sulfate, or alternatively we can combine them with some manganese to produce the NCM 811. So. And the reason that's important is because a lot of these battery manufacturers already have existing supply chains. And so they, that nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate is still in high demand. and and they and they'd like to be able to plug that into their existing supply chains. But ultimately, we believe the better way to do that is to do it in Vietnam with the um, abundant renewable power, the very competitive labor costs and, and minimise the transportation of the nickel sulphate product. Because that, uh, by transporting intermediate products, like say nickel sulphate, which is only 22% nickel, you're adding CO2 every time that product gets on a, on a truck or a ship and unless they, they're electri- electrified. So it's really about minimising uh, the um, transportation of intermediate products but also, we—it's it, this—is another customer-led strategy. So we can't just go out there and say, or oh, we only sell NCM 811 We—we've got to be flexible to what the customers' needs are. And some customers need nickel sulfate, some need NCM eight one one, some need cobalt sulfate. So it's—it is a—it's really a, an, another customer-led strategy.
0: Um, obviously, given given your uh, business model, or is a partnership-based model. Um, can you update? us on the the process around finding potential partners
1: yeah so what we've done we've focused on south korea for now four or five years and and they've they've taken us through this journey Um, we've we've actually engaged one partner that um hasn't played out as well as we hope so we're we're now looking for us a new partner so we so we're focused on south korea to date and we're 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 getting very close with those um, potential partners but we've also decided well why not open up the search radius to include japan china oems as well so car manufacturers as well as battery manufacturers and so so we've got an opportunity now to we've we've built a very strong relationships in south korea and and they've they've been with us for four or five years so they've been along the journey they are well advanced but we've decided, okay, well, why not open this up and and include other other potential partners, and and if if not, just to put some pressure on the South Koreans as well, because, um, yeah, it, there's nothing better than being in a competitive process, and so we've now created that competitive process, and and that and it's working well. So we we um yeah we've we've now got many opportunities on the table, many more than we had even three. Three months ago. So, yeah. So it's a it's about p- building that competitive tension, understanding the products that are required and the and the position that these downstream players are in, and and then just um yeah then and working through that that competitive tension and and getting the best deal for our shareholders. And unfortunately, that just takes time. So it's taken longer than we thought, and and it's taken longer than the shareholders hoped. Um, it's ho- taken longer than we'd ever hoped, but uh, we're getting there as well. And the other thing is that these groups need definitive feasibility studies and final studies to be able to commit significant amount of capital. So we're looking at a, a circa billion dollar project. So we need to be at that definitive feasibility studies phase, which, which we're at now, which is only just just coming to to the end of that study now. So we're now in that position where we can go to the strategics and say, yep, Here's the study. Let's let's do a deal. And um, so we're building that that yeah that competitive process now. And and then once we've completed the study over the next few months, they then we can we can get the bids in.
0: These partners, obviously you mentioned like car manufacturers, uh, electronic manufacturers, for instance, do they actually understand the long lead times to start a mining operation? Obviously, they probably do now speaking to them, but did they initially know how long it takes to obviously build start and build a mine?
1: Yeah, it's a it is a big problem. So the, the problem the what we found is the further away the customer is to your part of the supply chain, the more difficult it is to, to deal with them. So so the, the immediate customer which is say a cathode manufacturer they on a daily basis they're buying and um, nickel and cobalt manganese so they're in the market so they understand the market they understand how long it takes to bring a nickel mine on a cobalt mine a manganese mine the further you go down that supply chain and and obviously the car is the car manufacturer is the last line the 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 less understanding they have of of the the other parts of the supply chain before them, so they definitely do not understand, and and that's why we've preferred to to deal with uh, cathode and battery manufacturers because they they are a lot closer to their our part of the supply chain, but also their understanding of mining is is a lot better. And so, for example, and and a lot of these um, Korean and japanese and, and even chinese groups have been sourcing metals for other parts of their business so for example like um, groups like posco in um, korea have been um, sourcing um, materials for their steel industry for for the last 10 20 years so so they have an understanding of mining um through their other business dealings and so that's really helped as well so th- we 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 definitely we we prefer groups that understand mining and understand the process and and how difficult it is to bring on a mine, and um and unfortunately the OEMs are, are nowhere on on that front and um and they yeah they're starting to really work that out very quickly now, and uh, and unfortunately yeah it's 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 just it's it's going to create a real supply crunch and and we're starting to see that in lithium and and we'll see that um in nickel uh, going forward.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, and obviously talking about partners, is it as simple, or which I, I doubt it is, but it's as simple as whoever presents the best deal uh or the type of product that you potentially would partner with is a key consideration or is there a lot to it in analysing a partner that you're gonna work with?
1: Yeah, so obviously it's all about the the best outcome for the shareholder. So and that economics plays a big, an important role in that. But we also have to think of particularly things like ESG. So ESG is is drives everything that we do at Blackstone. So so we we need to pick partners that are focused on on high levels of ESG compliance, similar to to we are. So so yeah, it's it, it will come down to economics definitely. Um, but we we need to choose our partners that are aligned. With our strategy on ESG, which is it is yeah net zero carbon, low carbon nickel, but a real focus on um, social compliance, like looking after the local people in Vietnam. That is very important to us, and so the partner has to have that same uh, focus on 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 social and corporate governance as well. That um, a lot of people forget that. The G in ESG, and, and that is a, a very important uh, thing for us. is is making sure that the partner is aligned on on the corporate governance side. So, yeah, I think um, if if they've they've got the right price and they can tick all the ESG hurdles, then they're, they're pretty much there for us.
0: Um, are Blackstone Minerals green credentials especially attractive to the groups you're talking to? And is most of the interest coming out of Asia and Europe or is there other parts of the, the world?
1: Yeah, so it's a really good question. So what we're seeing is particularly out of Europe, there's a there's a real understanding and focus on ESG and, and and low carbon. So what we're seeing is what what we think is happening is that the European car manufacturers are pushing back at to the battery manufacturers and saying your CO two footprint of your battery needs to be under this level or lower, and and so the what we're seeing is that now the battery manufacturers are coming to us and saying, oh, well, you've got that low carbon nickel that we need, we can't find much of that. Um, would you like to sell us some? And we're saying, well, yes, but you might have to pay a premium for that. And so and they now they're very um, open to that because. To, to attract the premium car manufacturer brands, they, these um, brands have been built over decades. That they can't tarnish their reputation by taking dirty nickel from Indonesia, for example. So, so there's a lot of interest, particularly out of what what we see coming out of Europe. Um, but it's a Western thing. It, 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 if you've got a premium car brand, you just can't tarnish that brand by going and taking cheap dirty nickel from, let's say, Indonesia. Um, So, yeah, and what we're seeing is that particularly those Indonesian groups that are operating in Indonesia, they understand this more than anyone because they're the ones that are being scrutinised. And so the groups that have already gone into Indonesia, they're the ones that have realised, okay, well, they're getting getting pushed back from their downstream um, customers and saying, no, we can't take that. And so they're the groups that are coming to us and saying we need all the green nickel that you can deliver us, and and so that's um, that's putting us in a really strong position. I think I think because of that European focus on ESG, there's a good chance that our nickel will end up in a, a European car. Um, but on the same point, we we think that the US will also head in this direction. Um, at the moment, the US is focused on. The IRA, which is a, a policy around um, securing metals from free trade agreement countries with the US, but I think ultimately they will push down this ESG path as well. So, so yeah, I think our, our nickel will most definitely end up in Europe, and most likely also in in the North America region. And um, but yeah, we're on the doorstep of of a local um, EV player as well, Vinfast. So there's a very, very strong chance that our nickel will end up in an electric vehicle built in Vietnam, which is a great story. So taking nickel all the way from our mine in Vietnam all the way to, through to a, a locally made electric vehicle by VinFast is a great story for Vietnam. It's a great story for Blackstone and it's a great story for VinFast. So that's that's another likely scenario is that, yeah, our nickel will end up in a, an electric vehicle in, in uh, Vietnam.
0: And with obviously the, the products you're producing, how many I suppose in looking at scale, how many car manufacturers could you supply your products to? It would it solely be potentially just one one company?
1: Yeah, yeah. Un- unfortunately, um, the the demand is so great that we will. Yeah, we may we may supply one or two, maybe three. But we can probably I think the numbers are something like we we might do a million cars per annum so which is not a large amount on a global scale and 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 that may allow us to, to supply one or two maybe three but it's not it's not uh, a large number compared to the amount of vehicles that will be sold over the coming years. so yeah I think there's a, there's a scenario where we would have multiple customers. And we may some may go to Europe and US and 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 locally as well. So, yeah, it'll be good to have that diversified sort of customer base. Um, but yeah, there's more than enough demand for one vehicle company to to take all of our nickel, and and more and there's and more than we can deliver.
0: Um, given obviously the tough markets at the moment, do you think uh, when news comes out around obviously partnerships and funding the stock? could get re-rated?
1: Yeah, most definitely. So we've got a, a an MPV of maybe 2 or $3 billion. And the reason the market is trading so low is it believes that we'll never be able to build it. And so as, as soon as it looks like we're going to build it, then it starts to trade more in line with the fair value of the of the business. And, and so if we can show that we're going to build it and we're not going to do major dilution to the existing shareholders, so it's always about MPV per share, and so they know that it's 3 billion but they're worried that we're going to issue so, so many shares that they'll get diluted once the market realizes that there's not going to be major dilution because we're all major shareholders ourselves and we're going to build this and um and produce products and cash flow i think the the mine and refinery spits out 500 million dollars per annum or something like that and so ultimately um, it will trade in line with the fair value, which is yeah multiple billions of dollars. So it's as soon as we can show that that will happen and the partnership is is the first stage of that, then
0: yeah it, it should rewrite significantly. Um, you're aiming for the middle of the year to release uh, the DFS. Just wondering if you can give us an update on that, um, and what are the key milestones for uh, to the sort of company's story?
1: Yeah, so that's a, an important one. We're getting very close to that. And the other thing is we're we're also looking at the partnership as well. So we we don't want to come out with a DFS that's not aligned with the partner. So there, there's a bit of a juggling act there. So we're, we are getting close on the DFS, but we're also getting close on the partnership. So which one will come first and, and maybe they come together. So there's that. Um, and so really it's, yeah, locking in the partner, um, completing these studies, and then really moving into the build phase, and and the build phase is requires a partnership, but also requires debt. The debt will be linked to that partnership, so the it'll be government-backed debt associated with the partners. Uh, and then and then we move into the build phase in the new year. So it's um yeah, so it's that final stage of studies and funding, which will unlock the the value, and and then then we move into the build phase
0: and concluding what's the outlook for the sort of next 6 to 12 months and is there anything else you'd like to add
1: yeah so it's it's really the 6 to 12 months or so the next 3 to 6 months we're running that that competitive partner process we we land the partner we come out and say this is the partnership structure whether it's 50-50 or whatever we end up um, building that partnership around and 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 how that sort of partnership plays out over the mine and the refinery and the ultimate products as well so what 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 product will the the partnership be producing all of that so that that in the next 3 to 6 months and then and then we go into that that build phase so yeah so it's a big 6 to 12 months where we go from market at the moment saying you're never going to build it to okay oh it's going to be built now we need to value it appropriately so uh, then it's then it's sort of okay. Well, how much is this company worth? And and the the numbers are saying two to three billion. Um, we've just got to show that pathway, and that pathway will will come to the market over the next three to six months.
0: Scott, really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for coming on and uh, telling us more about the company, and especially the the processes that you're going through, and 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 the the partnership story as well, which I think is important, and also. Um, customer-led, which I think is a, a bit of education uh, for people that are listening to, to this episode. So really appreciate your time. If our um, audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions, if they want to follow uh, your story, when um, how can they go about uh, contacting you, reaching you, and, and following your story on social media?
1: Yeah, so we're active. Uh, I'm personally active on LinkedIn uh, and Twitter, so we can – we can communicate via those channels, um, or or just uh, um, through email. And uh, yeah, we're we're very open to to dealing with any any queries that that come through. So yeah, more than happy to to get on a call even uh, and and talk through um, questions.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly, and we include those in the show notes the companies there. Uh... Episode as well for easy access. So, um, Scott, like I said, really appreciate your time. It'd be good if you come on uh, sometime next year and give us an update, especially around yeah. obviously the build and and the partnerships that hopefully you would have uh, um, done deals with. Um, it's good to uh, understand the story in a lot more detail. So, uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you, uh, audience, for listening. Uh, certainly, a lot to take away from that. Um, so a lot of education as well, like especially like the customer led. I think that's important. Um, and obviously not many people or companies are doing that out there. So um a lot to take away. So appreciate your continued support. Please keep sharing this episode um and the podcast to um others within the industry, but also people outside of the industry. Obviously, from what Scott said today, um, battery batteries are going to come more and more important in, in every day, in everyone's or every people's day. So listening to something like this is a bit of education. So please share this episode for people outside of the mining industry also. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining helping each other to improve the mining industry.